Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Hay and to today's event which is in partnership with the University of Cambridge. Diane Coyle is the Professor of Public Policy at the Bennett Institute of Public Policy at Cambridge University. Uh, she is also the author of GDP, a brief but affectionate history and she'll be signing in the book tent afterwards. Please do give Diane a warm Hay welcome. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's, uh, it's stopped raining. Is everybody happy? Yes. OK, great. Are you happier than you were five years ago? Yes. It's, not, it's not quite as resounding a yes, but it was definitely happier. What about better off? Are you better off than you were five years ago? Oh, I'm not so sure. There's some yeses and some noes there. All the time, governments do things um, that they think are making us better off. And we talk about this or that public policy. Is it going to make us better off? Is it going to increase GDP? And uh, is it going to go up by 0.4% instead of 0.2% next time the figures come out? So what I'm interested in is what does better off actually mean? How do we measure it? And that takes us to thinking about economic statistics. Now, don't change your mind about being happy, because economic statistics are actually really interesting. <laughs> In fact, they're exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're dangerous. And what do I mean by that? This man, his name is Andreas Georgiou, and for a few years, he was the chief statistician in Greece. Now, Greece, uh, back in the 1990s, um, was quite a recent member of the European Union. They really, really wanted to join the euro. And they really, really, really wanted to borrow money from uh, investment banks like Goldman Sachs so that they could spend the money and be better off. The catch was that to get to join the euro or to get the investment banks to lend the money, they had to have a very high ratio of things like... Um, uh, 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 the government debt to GDP. I'm sorry, a very low ratio of government debt to GDP. Well, they had to show that the budget deficit, the gap between what the government was spending and what it was taking in in taxes, wasn't too high relative to GDP. Now, there are two ways you can go about doing that. You can either raise taxes and cut spending, or you can increase GDP. And the Greek government decided it was going to be much easier to increase GDP by making up the numbers that they wanted. And I'm not exaggerating. The um, statisticians in Europe who vet these numbers for a number of years before the uh, crisis hit Greece in 2012 would not uh, state that the accounts were accurate. And they used some actually quite unbureaucratic language for how made up they thought the GDP statistics were. So when the crisis broke and the Greek government wanted to borrow money from the International Monetary Fund and the European Central Bank, one of the conditions imposed was that they introduce a statistician who could count, rather than one who would make the numbers up. And so Andreas Georgiou got the job. He was a very distinguished economist. He'd worked at the International Monetary Fund. 
And uh, he came in and he cleaned up Greece's GDP figures. And that made the, uh, the deficit and the debt ratios look unfortunately very high relative to GDP because he was taking down the GDP part. And that made the negotiations all that much more fraught. And so some politicians in Greece took him to court accused of treason. And he was acquitted. And then he was accused again. And he was acquitted again. And now he's been accused for a third time. So the international statistical community is up in arms about this. It's not a very powerful lobbying group, I have to say. <laughs> um, but this, this is why statistics are powerful and, and dangerous. Now, if you look at what happened in Greece, their GDP figures tell the story in a very sad way. This is actually um, household consumer spending, which is the main part of GDP, but it tells this, this uh, story of a very big increase up until the crisis hit, and then a very sharp drop, and several years when nothing much has improved. And so for years now, uh, there has been a crisis in the Greek economy and the turbulent politics that goes with that. But of course, it's not just about the statistics. This tells the story of uh, young people who can't get jobs, of uh, people who have to stay living at home with their parents because they can't afford their own apartment, uh, that they have to emigrate to get work, so all of those human costs that go with the story that the statistics tell. But this is a pretty dramatic graph as, as these kinds of things go. So it does tell the story. But what are we to make of the story? I mean, obviously, it's not a good thing that the crisis happened in Greece. But I've got another graph for you. Oh, sorry, I'm an economist, so there are some graphs in this presentation, but you know, bear with me. I've got another graph that contrasts Greece and Portugal. So I don't know if you can see the faint green line from the back of the room, but the green line is what happened in Portugal, which had a bit of a crisis around the same time as well, and the dark blue line is what is what's happened in Greece. And so you see this incredible run-up in GDP per capita in Greece and then the decline in the crisis, and Portugal had less of a run-up and less of a decline, and now they're both about the same. They're both about the same level of well-off as each other. And I'm not sure... Which of these is better? Was the party worth the hangover? Was it better to have all that extra spending that Greece had in the meantime and be able to buy the you know, fancy cars and extra apartments that that signified and then have the terrible crisis and all the political turmoil and the adjustment costs that have gone with that? Or was it better to be Portugal and have a, you know, a bit too much of a boom and a bit of a crisis and end up in the same place? So the level of standard of living now is the same as in Greece. So I'm in two minds about this. Maybe you can tell me, who thinks it's better to be Greece? It's just a few. Who thinks it's better to be Portugal? That's a lot. So you all think the stability is better and it wasn't worth having the boom. The trouble is, the politics of this, that people, when the boom is happening, they really love it. And voters reward politicians who create... That, that kind of run-up in, in the economy. So already, you know, we've got some insights into how difficult it is to look at what's happening to the economy, to GDP, and figure out um, what's, what to make of it. Are we actually getting better off? So these GDP figures, they do give us lots of information, but they don't tell us the whole story we might need to evaluate how we think, as voters, how we think our government is doing. 
And anyway, as you probably know, because you're interested enough to come to this talk, there are lots of flaws in using GDP anyway. And some of them are very well known. So it's well known that it doesn't capture the damage that we do to the environment with economic growth, for example. Um, GDP is, is meant to capture monetary transactions, and a lot of nature stands outside the market, so those transactions don't get counted in any way, and that's a well-known flaw. GDP does, in principle, capture all monetary transactions, and for the past few years, the statisticians have been meant to include all kinds of illegal activities for which there's a market, so uh, selling illegal drugs or prostitution, for instance like the left-hand side. I'm sure nobody in the audience knows exactly what's going on here, so I'll tell you, this is an illegal drugs transaction. I don't know how they get the figures, but they do put them into our GDP figures now. So if there's a boom in illegal drugs or prostitution, in theory, that makes the economy look like it's doing better. But what's not captured are other transactions outside the market, like uh, cooking at home, caring for dependents, children or elderly relatives, and all of those activities that actually uh, are part of the fabric of society. It's not that it doesn't have value. And in fact, when the concept of GDP was created back in the 1930s and 40s, there was quite a, an active debate among economists about whether or not to include work inside the home because it was recognized that it was valuable. And in the end, all the economists who were uh, pretty much all men at that time, it's not a lot better now, but it's a bit better, um, said, no, it's too hard to count that, so we'll keep it outside the economy. And so um, now we include in the economy what businesses do and what the government does, and we exclude what happens inside the household and what happens in nature on the whole. So this is a kind of well-known flaw. Some people don't like the fact that GDP is all about money anyway, and uh, particularly environmentalists will say, uh, nature's intrinsically valuable, you can't put a price on it, and you shouldn't even be trying. And the economist's reply to that is that if you don't put a value on it, people won't value it. And there are lots of examples of uh, occasions when financial incentives really help um, improve the quality of nature. To give you just one example, um, farmers in Costa Rica, big loggers who had been taking down the rainforests, were given a financial incentive not to do so, and the uh, expanse of forest in the country has increased dramatically, and they now have an ecotourism industry that they used not to have. So those financial incentives can be really powerful. So economists like to have um, pound signs in front of things. We like to count money, but we could count it in other units. It's actually not that it's money. We're trying to aggregate everything into a, a common unit. Um, it could be bees. If you could think of a way of changing bees into money, then we could count consumption in the economy and investment and all of those things that go into GDP and translate it into bees and say, the economy's gone up from uh, 1.3 trillion bees to 1.7 trillion bees, and this is great. So the units don't matter. It's all about um, trying to have a common basis for thinking about what's going on and evaluating whether things are getting better or not. But why are we measuring the economy? Why do we care about the economy? What is the economy? And in fact, it's a relatively new concept. It wasn't until about a century ago that the idea that there was a separate domain called the economy even uh, came about. 
people used to talk about prosperity, about wealth, about uh, the in health of industry. There are all kinds of other terms that were used, but this abstract term, the economy, came about relatively recently, and it's now used to justify any kind of policy. Uh, is it going to be good for the economy or not? Well, maybe instead of worrying about GDP because of all these flaws, we should be thinking about measuring the economy and therefore evaluating what the government does in a completely different way. And so what I want to talk about are a number of the different ways that are now available um, to, to think about whether things are getting better or not. And I gave you a clue about one of them right at the start by asking how happy you all are. So we could just ask people. And uh, this has been done in this country since uh, the, the Cameron government. And uh, this is what the answers look like. So um, the question is asked in different ways. Uh, it's about, asked about life satisfaction. Uh, do you feel your life is worthwhile, which is the yellow one? And are you happy, which is the black line? So the happiness line is the bottom one. And is your life worthwhile is the top one. So it's kind of interesting that people answer these differently anyway. And you probably can't see the axis, but it goes from zero up to 10. And uh, I'm going to ask you, how, on a scale of zero to 10, just shout out, how happy are you? <laughs> yeah, there is a 7.87 on the chart. Um, so actually, from what I heard, that sounds sort of typical. In, you, here in this country, it ranges from, uh, it's about 7.7 .7 up to, oh, that must be 7.87 at the end there, uh, on the, uh, is life worthwhile? They all move in the same way, as you can tell. For the rich countries, uh, around 7 or 8 is a typical score on these kinds of surveys, which are always done on the scale of 1 to 10, or a scale that you can tr translate in, as 1 to 10. And they, it goes up gently, as you can see, um, the statisticians ask questions for different regions, and they ask men and women separately. So you can look at some of the demographic and regional breakdowns as well. Oops. So I thought this is quite interesting. Large proportion of people in Wales report low ratings of life satisfaction, worthwhile, and happiness. And it turns out that the people of Northern Ireland are the people at the other extreme. But these are quite small differences, and actually, they don't change much over time. So it's not obvious to me that this is a fantastic way of evaluating government policies. When you dig under the figures to find out exactly what it is about people's lives that make them say it's a seven and not a six, it turns out, who would have thought, that people like having sex and don't like talking to their boss. So there aren't wonderful policy conclusions to draw from this. <laughs> you know, if politicians promised you that you could have more sex and not have to talk to your boss, that might be a vote winner, but I'm not sure they can actually deliver that kind of thing. Um, so I'm a little skeptical about how useful this approach is for policy, but there's a lot of interest in this in economic research. Because it seems so much more direct than asking about GDP and trying to figure out how GDP is turning into what makes life worthwhile for people. And particularly, of course, because we're in an environment where um, GDP has been not going up very much, and people's incomes have not been going up very much in the years since the financial crisis. And we've seen people um, uh, expressing more discontent about GDP 
And there's a well-known story about an academic called Anna Menon, who's at King's in London, who was doing some road shows before the uh, European referendum on ex just explaining to people to try to educate them about, about the issues on which they're about to have to vote. And he was saying something about GDP had done this or that. And a woman in Newcastle heckled him and said, that's your bloody GDP, not mine. And so it's that kind of sense of discontent that's making people interested in other metrics for figuring out how, how much better off we're getting or not. But this one is interesting. I don't think it's useful for policy. There are also lots of things happening in the economy that are making it just much harder to understand and track what's happening. So probably most of you have in your pockets or actually in your hand because you're a bit bored with the talk and you're Googling, it, Googling something at the moment, uh, smartphones. We've had smartphones for 10 years bringing about very big changes in business behavior and people's behavior and all kinds of new businesses. And a lot of free stuff, a lot of stuff on your phone for which you're not paying except indirectly through what you pay for your phone contracts or, or, or buying the phone in the first place. Economists don't like free stuff. We don't know how to measure it if there's not a price attached to it. So one thing that a number have been doing, including me, is asking people how much would you be willing to accept if I took your smartphone away from you for a month? Or if I took social media away or email away from you for a month? Now, some people would say, I would pay, pay you to take my email away from me. But this is not typical. So I could come to any of you in the front row and say, say, how much would you be willing to accept to give up social media for a month? Somebody call out a number. 100 pounds? 10,000? I'm not, this is hypothetical, I'm not offering you any money. <laughs> this is not a bargaining situation. <laughs> so I have been doing some work to ask people, um, I've been doing this with YouGov, so these are um, uh, polls, and these are the kind of figures, this should say preliminary in big letters across it, it's just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that people say. Um, so this question is social media, how much would you need to be paid to give up social media for a month? And you can see that there's a range. Some people say up to £10. Uh, some people are saying 500 to £1,000. Some people are saying more than 1000 So this right-hand bar is really interesting. It's about uh, in 13% of people say there is no amount of money that would make me give up social media. And uh, quite a lot are saying I'd need more than £1,000 to give up social media, which, again, is almost equivalent to saying there's no realistic amount of money. So these are, in general, quite high figures, and this is typical in this relatively new area of research, that people value the free stuff that they're getting through online really very highly indeed. And in general, the technology is just making it much harder to interpret what's going on in the economy. And perhaps thinking about it in a money metric isn't the right way to do it. Um, Perhaps we need to think about a different kind of metric altogether. So another one that I'm interested in is how are we spending our time? Because there's a real constraint. 24 hours in a day, you're going to sleep for six to eight of them. You're going to eat some meals and have your baths and so on. So that's a real budget constraint, a time budget constraint. And we live in an economy where most of what's happening is services. It's those lovely people who are serving you cups of coffee out in the festival. 
people writing software programs, people who are teachers. Most jobs now, uh, more than four out of five, are service sector jobs. And thinking about time seems a much more sensible way to try to unpick whether things are getting better or not. Um, so let me give you some examples. This is the charismatic Swedish statistician, and you don't often say those words together, <laughs> Hans Rosling, who died relatively recently, fantastic man. And he told the story about his mother getting her first washing machine. And um, his grandmother was so mesmerized that she put a chair in front of the machine the first time it was turned on and sat and watched the cycle. And his mother took him to the library rather than having to spend time doing the washing. And I can remember my mum doing this as well. She had a top loader and the clothes had to go through a mangle. So the washing machine was a fantastic uh, piece of uh, time liberation technology. And Rosling has this great TED talk where he argues that it's one of the most important innovations ever because it freed so much of women's time. And of course, a lot of those women took their kids to the library and did other things with them, but a lot also went out to work. So the domestic innovations of the 1950s and 1960s actually contributed quite a lot to the increase in GDP and the increase in the economy over that period because people um, stopped doing things in the household, which wasn't counted in GDP, and started working in the market and buying consumer durables and buying ready meals and so on, and that was all in GDP. So part of what we think of as that 20th century economic miracle was actually due to the washing machine. And so uh, technology has a very strong effect in, in liberating time, and that can also lead to some changes in where we think the boundary is between um, GDP and not GDP. There are technologies now, like um, artificial intelligence, which are greatly speeding up some areas of services. The example here is brain scans, medical, medical imaging and, and, and diagnostics. And so this is a technology which can both improve the quality and speed up test results for people who are not well. And that increase in speed is going to be a fantastic improvement, a fantastic innovation in making people better off. So like many um, automation technologies, it has a downside as well. It's going to put some people working in the medical business out of a job or have them uh, have to retrain and do something different. So there's a little bit of downside as well. But that's an area where speed is clearly going to be a big improvement. And then there's another example, uh, self-checkouts in supermarkets, which is going to look like it's a great innovation for improving productivity in the retailing industry, because the supermarkets will be employing fewer people and having the same amount of money go through the tills. So it looks like it's productivity improving, it'll be good for the economy, except all they're doing is substituting your unpaid labor for the paid labor of the people who used to man the checkouts. So there are some complicated things going on, but I think asking people about time use would be a really interesting way to think about, is the economy getting more productive? Or what, not, not productive, because how can you have pr productivity when there are no products? But are we getting better off? Is it making our lives better? And uh, particularly asking people about how they use their time online, why do people find social media so, uh, so valuable that they wouldn't accept anything less than £1,000 or any amount of money to give it up. So I think we need to understand that better. 
So I've told you about asking directly about well-being. Um, I've talked about the, um, the time use, and we might be interested in asking about that. There's another possible approach. So a while ago, I said um, one of the problems about GDP is it doesn't account for nature. And that's partly because it's not easy to get market prices, but also partly because GDP is about what happens now. In this quarter, or in this year, how much is spent in the economy? And there's nothing about what does that imply for how much is available to be spent in the future. How much are we depleting natural resources, natural assets? There's no balance sheet. So one of the things that I would really like to see is a national balance sheet, where we ask not just about um, uh, money and not just about nature, but all kinds of assets in the economy. And um, so here are six kinds of assets that I suggested in uh, an essay for the Indigo Prize that we ought to um, start counting. We ought to count financial assets, money in the piggy bank. Um, but we also ought to count physical infrastructure and other productive assets. We don't have any figures that tell us what the state of our physical infrastructure is. Uh, we know if you drive down the road how many potholes there are, but there's nothing that feeds back to the policy machine what kind of state it's, it's in and what we ought to be doing about that. You have to write to your local councillor to complain. Um, then there's natural capital, nature as well. And this is intrinsically valuable. We value it in itself. We like being in nature. But it's also economically valuable and valuable for human health. Think about clean air in cities. Think about the way um, trees upriver or um, areas of wetlands downriver might mean that we didn't have to build so many concrete flood defences. So thinking about natural assets is important. And then on the bottom row, human capital. What are the skills and uh, long-term assets that people have that's that are going to enable them to lead the kinds of life that they want to lead that will eventually lead them to report that they're an eight or whatever on the well-being scale? And then we have um, intangible assets, data. We have an economy where we're told all the time how valuable data is. People say data is the new oil. Um, but we don't know how much there is or what it's worth or even how to value it. So let's think about those intangible assets as well. And then finally, I don't mean you all ought to be on LinkedIn, but this is meant to represent social capital, the kind of value in our societies that's created by the way we interact with each other rather than just being owned by ourselves. And so the example here is about the way it's much easier for people if they've already um, uh, got a job and they know other people to find the next job. And social isolation has uh, human and economic consequences. So this is a very different kind of approach. It's not based on how well off do we feel because we have this much money to spend on these goods and services in this month. It's about what assets do we have access to that will enable us to live our lives to the full, to do the kinds, to lead the kinds of lives we want, and uh, and make, give us the ability to feel that our lives are worthwhile and making us happy. So this is not at all what we do with statistics now. We've got some of the bits of information we need, but not much. So it's a big change in thinking about statistics. But in another way, it's a very old approach. Anybody know what this is page from? It's the Doomsday Book, that's right. Um, so that was a, a, a census of the country's assets. 
and not just what there was, but where it was. People went around the country and reported back on um, the livestock and the orchards and so on. So every place in, in the country had its record in the Doomsday Book. So although um, it would be new for now, it's actually a very old approach to thinking about prosperity. What assets do we have to build on for the future? So as well as all of that, the other things I think we've learned from the past 10 or 15 years is how much distribution matters. And there have long been statistics that economists use that talk about income distribution. Here is uh, the income distribution for the United Kingdom, the latest figures. So the median, the, the, the um, halfway mark in the distribution is just over £27,000. Disposable means after taxes and benefits. Equivalised means you try to adjust for how many people in the household and whether some of them have more expensive needs, such as being disabled or being children. And um, the median is lower than the mean, lower than the average, because there are lots more. There are some rich people who skew that distribution. And there are probably some rich people off the chart who don't really feel like reporting their incomes to the tax authorities. Um, so those figures have long been available. They haven't really been paid attention to until really quite recently, when it seems to be very much linked to um, patterns of voting and the kinds of shocks that have been um, seen at the ballot box recently. So distribution clearly matters. Um, but there's also the where. This is, this is how much do households have. But it's also important to understand more about where are those households who have this amount of money. And here too, there's a kind of revival of research interest in economic geography and the links between how well off people feel, how uh, worthwhile they feel their lives are, and how much money they have, trying to understand this nexus. But this too is an old approach come back. You probably recognize this as Charles Booth's Poverty Maps of London, where the darker the area uh, that's colored, the lower income the households. And this is a, a fantastic insight into the London of the time because it maps in such detail the links between locations and, and income levels. And this ties back to my previous chart about the kinds of assets we should be measuring because a lot of those are in particular places. The woodlands are in particular places. The physical infrastructure is in particular places. And so we want to understand not just the national total for how much money there is in financial assets and how much um, uh, we've invested in infrastructure. We also want to know where it is and who's got access to it and what can they do with it. And some of those kinds of infrastructure are, are very skewed in their distribution. It, rich people have much higher social capital to call on. They've got much better connections than people on lower incomes. But they also have access to better infrastructure and that's in particular places. In our country, it's heavily concentrated on London. And the amount of investment that goes into adding more and better public transportation in London is, is extremely, um, extremely much greater than in other parts of the country. I mean, the public transport connections to Hay are not marvelous. So a lot of people would have driven here. Um, if you uh, live in the north of England and want to commute to one of the major cities, your connections are not great either. And the poorer the area you live in, the worse those commuter routes. And so to travel from um, 
the, the western part of northern England to the eastern part of northern England, which is at the same kind of length as the central line in London, will take two or three times as long, and it will be on a train that's actually a converted bus on wheels. So we need to start thinking about this interplay between the conventional measures, the income that people have, but also the assets that they have access to, and where they are, and what's the distribution. And only by doing this will we really get a handle on how much better off things are getting and be able properly to hold politicians to account and policymakers to account for the decisions that they take that affect everybody's lives. So that's um, the research program that's going to keep me occupied for the rest of my career. I did promise you that statistics is really exciting. Um, but there are some questions there about what's the best way to go about it. So I want to end by asking you, I'm going to take a very unscientific vote. I've offered you various different options, and I just want to find out from this audience what you think would be the best way to go. So let's put them all up here. Uh, we could carry on doing what we do now. We can measure GDP and growth, and we can talk about policies being good for the economy. We could ask people directly. We could ask, are you at 7.57 or 7.87 on the happiness scale? Um, we can ask about how much they value different um, uh, amenities in their life. So I can ask about social media, but I could also ask you directly, how much do you value having access to a new train line, or how much would you value, how much would you have to accept if I, t if I uh, take down this woodland to build some new houses in the area? So there's a lot of work to be done asking about that. Or we can go to a completely different frame of analysis and set aside thinking about the money and, the, and um, those, those flows and ask instead about time. Are these things giving you more leisure time? Are they allowing you to spend your time in ways that, that improve the quality of your life, better medical innovations and so on? Or should we switch to a balance sheet approach and start counting up national assets and also understanding the map of where those assets are and, and who has access to them. So um, this might get a little messy, but I'm going to ask. So hands, show of hands, please. Who thinks GDP growth is absolutely fine? We'll stick with that. That's, that's four people, five people, I think. OK. Um, how about asking directly, are you happy? Is your life worthwhile? Who, hands up if you're in favor of that. That's about a dozen or so. Um, what about asking about directly about the value of different amenities or goods? Who's in favour of that? That's just a little more, I think. And how about asking about time use? How do you use your time? Oh, yeah, that's more. That's more popular. And then finally, assets. Who thinks assets? Yes. You have all chosen my favourite. <laughs> I didn't rig this at all. Um, so this is a really, I hope I've shown to you, this is a really exciting um, question. It's a really live question. I think a lot of people don't feel that um, the fabric of their lives is being reflected either in the statistics or in the kind of policy conversation that happens about those statistics. And, um, and it's going to change. It's quite difficult to change because GDP and the system it sits in, it's an international standard. And to get any change, you go through 10 years' worth of committees in the United Nations. And you have to have 
a consensus among the economists and statisticians who work about it, so it's pretty slow. But um, the amount of um, energy and excitement going into this debate at the moment makes me think that actually it will change, and that just as in the 1930s and the Second World War, there was enough of a crisis in the world and in the economy that it completely changed people's way of thinking about it. I think actually we're in one of those phases now. These are kind of extraordinary and turbulent times. People are interested in understanding what's going on, and I think the sense that the statistics we have and the kind of discussion that we have about what's happening has got to change. So that's it from me. We have some time now for your comments and questions. Thank you very much. So I think we've got some microphones. Uh, there's one hand here, a red arm, and then one back there. Um, thank you very much for a very stimulating presentation. I've got one question on your assets slide, um, which actually links with something you said earlier on about, um, was it sex and questions from your boss or something? I can't remember, yeah. but something like that. And that is, where would you put family relationships in there? Because it strikes me that one of the things that's very difficult to imagine, and that for a lot of us, our biggest asset, if I might use that, what I see as an accounting word, but anyway, is our family relationships. Yeah. That sits under the heading social capital. And there are different forms of social capital. Um, you can think about it as the connections that get you a job, which is the example I used. You can think about it as um, the kind of reputational value that a company has. The value of a company balance sheet now is largely intangible goodwill. So that's a kind of social capital. But or you can also think of immediate community and family connections. And there's a great piece of work by a sociologist called Eric Kleinenberg, who looked at a heat wave in Chicago in 1995. And he matched different areas of the city by levels of income and unemployment and crime rates. And then he compared the death rates due to the heat wave in the um, Hispanic areas and the African-American areas. And it turned out that there were much lower death rates in the Hispanic areas because there hadn't been the same extent of family breakdown and community breakdown. So people checked in on their neighbors or on families with lots of kids to make sure they were okay and that they could get help if they needed it during the heat wave. So those are also very important. They come under that heading. There was one back here. Uh, back in the um, height of the Thatcher era, <coughs> when I was an environmental activist, one of our complaints was about the language that was used uh, to measure things. And particularly, we used to note that uh, railways were subsidized and we invested in motorways, uh, which we felt was a, a direct impact of the um, haulage industry's way, way of lobbying the government. One of the things I was struck by was um, you seem to imply that there's an opportunity here for us to redefine how we measure things, um, whereas historically politicians and, and the powerful people in society have actually defined how we measure things. Do you really think there is an opportunity here to, uh, you, by inviting us to give a show of hands, for instance, do you think there is an opportunity more widely for us to take part in, the, in, in this debate about what is important? I do, because I think the consensus, even among the powerful people and people in posh universities, about GDP is crumbling. And so that's an opportunity for other voices to be heard and other approaches to be taken. And as I was trying to say, there are various different approaches that could be taken. There's already been some change. So your example about motorways is one where the way that the Department for Transport appraises investment projects now has changed somewhat. 
And so the environmental effects, what are called the wider benefits of um, different projects, would be taken into account now in a way that wasn't the case when the motorway system was being built out. I'm not sure it's yet got to the point where we would add back into public transport system, systems not only the environmental benefits, but um, the other very hard to quantify gains that you might get from the way you rewire a community and an economy if you put public transport links in, but it, but it has improved. But I, I, I think this is, this is a genuine opportunity, and I would be really interested in, you know, if any of you want to uh, email me, if you can get through the GDPR emails, I'd be really interested to hear what you've got to say. Uh, some at the front here. Two, these two together here. One, one of you first, and then hand the microphone back. Instead of uh, attempting to pick one of those different categories of measurements, why, do, why wouldn't we say, let's do all of them, publish all of them, because then you would get a, a sort of a spread of influence over government policy. Why not pick yeah. them all? That's a good question. I mean, I, I am doing a lot of them, and the more I can get research funding for, the better. Um, the reason for picking on one is, is I think it's about that debate in a democratic society, that you want to be able to have a conversation between voters and politicians and officials about some kind of common ground, some, some common language for saying things are getting better or things are getting worse. And that would be the reason for having picking just one or two things. There has been a lot of um, a proliferation of indicators, social progress indicators, uh, genuine progress indicators, human development index. And the trouble is that when you've got 50 different things to look at, you, you're not in the same conversation. So, I'm all in favor of looking at lots of things, but I think in the end, picking something to concentrate on would be important. Hello, um, I was going to ask a similar question in that with the example under number three, you gave, um, you gave the example of valuing, oh, your social media. Yeah. But um, you could string that out and actually just ask people the value they give to all sorts of different things, whether it's having time to spend time to bath their children or walk in a wood or, you know, bringing in all those other assets that are in number five and then be able to compare what people truly value and then reflect democratically what individuals actually do value. You could use, you could use this technique for anything that doesn't actually have a price. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's absolutely true. It's quite an expensive way of gathering information and you worry about how representative it is, and also um, what anchors the, the answers that people give. And so, although the techniques used quite, quite widely, particularly in environmental economics, to understand the value that people place on uh, biodiversity or clean air and so on, um, you, you can get extremely different kinds of answers from it. So it's quite onerous, and it isn't yet clear um, what messages you're getting from the fact that in different places, you get different numbers, or you ask a question in a slightly different way, and you, and you get very different numbers. So the numbers I put up for social media use were very preliminary, and we're doing it again, putting the question in a slightly different way to see how much that changes the kind of answers we get. But in principle, I agree with you. Yeah. One of the things that has become fairly public recently is waste. Should we be valuing waste and subtracting it from GDP? Um, you've, you've touched on uh, one, of the, uh, one of the 
oldest criticisms of GDP, actually, that it, it um, counts bad things as good things. Um, one economist called them regrettables. They're things that we have to spend money on, um, but in no way are they contributing to, uh, to a better society. So waste would be one example. Um, paying for security guards might be another example. And um, so people have made the case for subtracting those. It does get a little bit arbitrary because people have different views about um, what's good and what's bad. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations said, in no way should bankers be counted as contributing to the Wealth of Nations. <laughs> this will be yeah, clearly popular again. Um, in fact, the definition of the financial services industry has changed several times, more than any other sector over the years. And every time the definition will change has increased the apparent size of the financial services to the point that um, the biggest contribution of the UK's financial sector to GDP growth came in the final quarter of 2008 when the financial crisis was in full bloom. Um, so, uh, so you absolutely could decide to subtract some things from GDP. The trouble is, from the standard economics point of view, is that you're imposing some kind of arbitrary value judgments then on how you weight all these things together. And so there was some debate about that. And in the end, they said, let's go with a simple thing and we'll just add up all the transactions that happen in the market because if people are spending money on them, then they are revealing that they want to spend money on them for some reason. And who are we to judge what those reasons are? Um, yeah. in, in terms of... I can't see you speaking. Stand up and Here wait. we are. Oh, At yeah. the back. I can see you now. If I may uh, put a question then. Um, Suppose that the government was prepared to be pioneering in terms of asset management and progress in that direction, and was prepared to fund the ONS to carry out alongside the current GDP measures and so on, asset management. What would you include as the assets thinking of a time scale to be practicable within the next five years or so, and bearing in mind what you were saying a moment ago about proliferation of statistics ends up with none of them really uh, having a major effect. Could one reduce it to figures for assets in exactly the same way as we end up with the GDP? Yeah, so this is um, a question that I spend a lot of time thinking about because I'm all about making this practical and affordable. Some of the work is already going on in the Office for National Statistics down the road in Newport. They are already collecting some of the information we need for natural capital and for human capital. There's some thinking that needs to be done in some of these areas, and there's quite a lot of data gathering that needs to happen that doesn't happen at the moment. So I said, for example, on infrastructure, we don't have a good picture of what we've got. A lot of it's in private hands now, and um, it, we, we just don't monitor what happens to that. But maybe we can use some new techniques. Satellite imaging and Google Street View images might be one way to think about um, practically and affordably putting together those kinds of statistics. So I think it's a realistic program. It's some, one that I'm trying to uh, get off the ground now in Cambridge. and. Um, I don't think it'll take five years, I think it might take 10 years or so, but that's how long it took to get to the system we have in the first place. The work on what became GDP started in the 1930s as a response to the Depression, 
when the governments of the day for the first time were facing calls to do something about the fact that unemployment was rocketing and people were losing money. And um, from the mid-1930s, it wasn't until um, really the early 1950s that the framework was in place and a number of countries started collecting GDP statistics. And then not until the 1960s and 70s that most countries had GDP statistics. And, and some still don't have very good ones. Poorer economies, which can't afford um, offices like the ONS, still don't have very good GDP statistics. So in that context, I think a switch to looking at our assets and thinking about our long-term future is, is viable and practical. There are loads of hands. Where's the next <laughs> one? Uh, sorry, I messed up previously. From a public policy perspective, traditionally, uh, government has supported those industries that uh, produce high productivity effects. There's an alternative view, which I think it comes out of Manchester University, concerning the foundational economy. Um, what should government be investing in? The um, reason governments like to think about high productivity is that productivity is what translates into higher living standards for everybody over time. And um, the, the mechanism uh, differs between economies depending on what's high productivity, but GDP growth is ultimately all about uh, using the resources that we have to deliver more services and more output and, and new innovations and new products. And so um, it's the fact, it's not so much that I can afford to buy a bigger car than I used to, but that if I have a cataract, I have an outpatient operation that's very straightforward compared to being in hospital for seven, several days. Or it's that we have these fantastic smartphones that many people find so compelling now. It's the innovations that matter. And that's why governments care about high productivity. But I think what's behind your question, and I agree with, is that not everybody's high productivity so you need to worry about how does that gain get distributed to everybody in society. But also that the apparently low productivity things really matter as well. And they would include um, caring for people, which is a really important, really important human activity. And, um, and it's badly paid and unproductive. And I would really like the government in its industrial strategy and thinking about productivity to think about how to make that meaningful work and better rewarded and deliver a better service for, for the people involved. Um, that's partly why I think I quite like the time use approach because that does put more emphasis on things that don't necessarily look productive in the conventional sense but are um, clearly very important to our society. We've probably got time for uh, two or three more. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, you talk about self-service checkout machines. Sainsbury's just stacked thousands of people across the UK and stuck in loads of machines. Um, how can we get people to um, shop more consciously and be aware of what is going on? Because um, if, if it continues that way, then it's going to create a lot of unemployment. Yeah, there's um, always this um, horrible trade-off that companies, individual companies, become more productive by introducing new machinery that uh, makes workers redundant and you get these redundancies. And it's a horrible process and it's the um, you know, dilemma in modern capitalism because that is what uh, delivers productivity and higher incomes over the long run. But for the people involved, it's pretty awful. And what I find interesting about this, the self-checkout machines is that I don't think customers like them. So 
um, and yet we're going along with it. So I'm of a certain age, as are a number of people in the audience, and this means that when I get to the self-checkout machine, I can't make it work and I swear at it. So I now stand in line for longer for the one checkout that's left open and, and use that instead. Um, so I guess one answer to your question is, is, that, is that we stop going to the, use the checkout machines and um, uh, complain to the supermarkets. Um, Albert Hirschman had this um, terminology, exit voice and loyalty. And uh, you could either exit, you could walk away as a consumer. If you can't walk away because all of the other supermarkets are doing the same thing, then you can jolly well make your views known and, and complain to the supermarkets. Uh, that doesn't really get away from the fundamental dilemma, though, which is that the process of, of um, innovation and growth is one of um, using machines, increasing the amount of capital to, um, to get more out of less. And then you worry about distributing the gains to as widely as possible. Um, oh, it's Hi. Um, I really like your idea of using assets to kind of calculate the country's assets, really, um, what we've got. But how do we as economists elicit societal preferences if we're using assets as a baseline as opposed to monetary value or even time? Um, well, I think it's a, it's a great question, and I think I'd want to ask why you want to elicit societal preferences, um, because they will be expressed. The point about looking at assets is that you're, you're not looking at the decisions and the outcomes. You're looking at what are people capable of. And it's based on uh, The Economist and Marchi Sen's capabilities approach. And uh, so you, you don't need to know uh, in detail what people's preferences are as long as you're confident that the envelope of assets available to them will allow them to, to manifest those. So I think it gets you away from having to, to, to do that in the way that in the way that you're describing as, you know, as GDP does and, and market prices do. And I imagine that even if we do start counting assets, we're still going to have some kind of um, uh, a GDP measurement uh, light going on. A lot of resources put into it by ONS at the moment. A lot less resource would still give us plenty of information about, about market choices. Uh, sure. I'm terribly sorry, I can't quite see what's going on because the lights are right in my eyes. So I'm relying on the people with the microphones to make the choices for me. Hi there, this is a more general question. Um, I was just wondering, um, there like, seems to be a consensus that GDP has had its day, a consensus that austerity hasn't made us better off, um, that inequality has gone too far. I was just wondering why there is such a big disconnect between what's going on in academia uh, and what all economists say and what's actually happening in policy. Uh, yeah... I, I, I wonder about this myself sometimes. I would add, <laughs> there are economists who are really passionately fond of GDP and don't agree with me about this, so you know, don't take my word as gospel on all of this. Um, I think there's a fear in politics, actually. I think politicians are just quite often afraid of um, taking dramatic steps. I was really struck after the financial crisis by how little regulation has changed. And I don't want to worry you, but I wouldn't rule out the same thing happening all over again because I don't think regulation of the financial system has changed all that much. And I think there was a kind of fear in that. Um, it's also partly that people who um, are in the world of policy now study their economics at university 10 or 20 years ago when the teaching hadn't changed very much 
academic economists hadn't absorbed the lessons of the crisis and the work that we do hadn't moved the way it has in the past 10 to 20 years. And so I think there's partly just that lag effect as well. And so um, part, you know, part of the way to address that is to go and talk to as many people as possible about, um, about where economic thinking is on the frontier. Um, this will have to be the last question, and somebody's been given a microphone there. Um, if the question is, if the question is, are we better off? What place is there in your models for things such as access to justice, protection of human rights, adherence to the rule of law, as measures for whether we're better off or not? They're obviously uh, profoundly important. Um, I, my answer would be that they're outside the domain of economics. And although I've been arguing that there are some um, things that are intrinsically valuable, like nature, that we should bring into the demand of economics because they're used in the economy and, and uh, they interact with it so much, actually, I don't think um, you really want economists saying justice is worth £100 or whatever the number might be, just, justice is worth a million pounds. I don't think we should be in that territory. You know, those sorts of rights are um, uh, profound and they, and they stand by themselves we would not be better off if we had worse justice. Um, you've been fantastic. The questions have been really illuminating, and um, we don't have time for any more. So I'm serious. I'm really interested in people's views about these questions. So um, do send an email if you want to. Uh, and do please buy my book. I'm very happy to sign copies afterwards. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>